to the Underclass Podcast with Austin Picard. I'm an independent researcher who can't stomach being lied to on a daily basis by the mainstream media. While we live in a fracturing society, launched into parallel realities, falling perfectly onto the two sides of the political spectrum, I remain in the underclass. How many times can we fall into the trap of manufactured consent? Whether it's aluminum tubes and the consequential lies of WMDs in Iraq, or babies in incubators used to drum up support for Iraq War I, referred to most often as the Gulf War. Maybe you fell for the more recent lies brought to us by think tanks and policy-steering organizations generating unconditional support for the United States' continued involvement in Ukraine. After years of State Department policies provoked the Russian invasion by staging violent color revolutions in Russian border states and placing intercontinental ballistic missile systems in strategic locations such as Romania and Poland, our state-sponsored media quickly began to create narratives out of whole cloth in order to justify blind support for the United States' role in the conflict subsequently running false stories such as the ghost of Kiev and the story of Snake Island, serving as war propaganda, creating a false convenient narrative much easier for the average American who suffers from a lack of exposure to historical context in regard to these territorial disputes to endorse and comprehend. Video footage went viral on social media, supposedly depicting a mysterious and heroic Ukrainian fighter pilot portrayed as a fulcrum flying ace responsible for shooting down at least six Russian fighter jets in the skies over Kiev during the first 30 hours of the invasion. Only after the intended over-emotional knee-jerk reaction had been achieved to a large enough extent would the reality of the situation be exposed. This whole story was proven to be entirely manufactured. The footage itself was even discovered to be completely fake, created using a digital combat flight simulator. In 2019, the military-industrial complex was again up in arms over the decision made by President Trump, who on more than one occasion attempted to withdraw U.S. troops out of Syria. This time, the justification to stay bogged down in a military conflict on the opposite side of the world was that a withdrawal could potentially betray an allied proxy group of Kurdish forces who, as a matter of self-interest, had partnered with the United States against the Islamic State in parts of Syria and Iraq. In a desperate effort to convince the public to criticize a strategy for peace, the American corporate media apparatus began to feverishly manufacture war propaganda. ABC News rushed to provide coverage of the ongoing massacre of Kurdish forces, showing footage of what they claimed were Turkish attacks and bombings in northern Syria. According to the New York Times, the clips that accompanied the reports on the bombings showed explosions and smoke dominating the dark horizon. Tom Lamas, an anchor with ABC News World News Tonight, spoke over the footage. This video right here appearing to show Turkey's military bombing Kurd civilians in a Syrian border town, Mr. Lamas said. This report also ran on Good Morning America before ABC News was forced to apologize due to the fact that the video they used had nothing to do with Syria at all. Instead, it was footage from a gun range in Kentucky of an evening machine gun event called the Knob Creek Night Shoot. Trump was ultimately convinced to flip-flop on the issue despite promising withdrawal of U.S. troops, and in late 2019, he ordered hundreds of additional troops and armored vehicles into Syria to guard the Deir Azor oil fields, claiming, We're keeping the oil, Trump said in October. I've always said that. Keep the oil. We want to keep the oil. $45 million a month. We've secured the oil. By November, the head of U.S. Central Command admitted there is no end date on the U.S. occupation of Syria. The U.S. State Department had been keen on attempting to perform a regime change operation in order to overthrow the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, since at least 2011. Key members in the Obama administration, including Hillary Clinton, had devised a policy, now known as the infamous bank shot strategy, 
with the goal being to switch sides in Libya by taking the side of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and the Muslim Brotherhood, using them to violently overthrow Omar Gaddafi, and then to redirect them into Syria to aid in the United States' mission of regime change there. First, they would have to use the media in order to rebrand the radical jihadist terrorists, many of which had fought against the United States in Iraq, as a new proxy force, now fighting for American interests, given a new name, the Moderate Rebels. Establishing an ethical pretext in order to sell this conflict to the American public became a top priority. False claims of extreme human rights abuses were made, attempting to convince the public of yet another fake pretext for war. In the book, Enough Already, written by Scott Horton, he explains, not only did Obama refuse to consult Congress for authorization, but he was not even in the country when he ordered the attack, which the Pentagon called Operation Odyssey Dawn. Instead, the president gave a speech from Brazil where he was traveling on unrelated business. In the speech, Obama falsely claimed that Gaddafi had vowed to murder every citizen in the eastern Libyan city of Benghazi and that his forces were already on their way to do the job if the U.S. did not stop them in time. He claimed there were 700,000 men, women, and children under the threat of imminent extermination and asked Americans to imagine the city of Charlotte, North Carolina being completely wiped out. The administration also claimed that Gaddafi was bombing peaceful protests and spread the ridiculous propaganda Gaddafi had given all of his soldiers Viagra so that they could rape every woman and girl they found on their rampage to the east. These were all lies. But they were good enough. The bombs came raining down. From prosperity to misery, Libya went from having the highest standard of living in all of Africa under Gaddafi to a completely destabilized nation with an open-air slave trade in the midst of a civil war. How many times can we fall into the trap of manufactured consent? A strategy of tension meant to obscure principled morality into an evil form of moral relativism. In today's episode, we reveal another layer of deception nearly lost down the memory hole as we discover how the Bush administration used the 2001 anthrax attacks to manufacture consent for the Iraq war. According to Abby and Robbie Martin in an article published at Mint Press News, less than three months before the September 11th attacks in June of 2001, at Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland, several former U.S. government officials, including former CIA Director James Woolsey, former New York Office of Emergency Management Director Jerome Hauer, and four U.S. journalists, Judith Miller of the New York Times, Lester Reingold of NPR, Mary Walsh from CBS News, and Jim Miklasuski, former Chief Pentagon Correspondent for NBC News, all participated in an elaborate bioterror attack simulation called Dark Winter which included dozens of actors and observers being professionally filmed for fake news broadcasts. Jointly put on by the Center for Civilian Biodefense Strategies and the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the drill simulated a bioterror attack in the form of aerosolized smallpox targeting Oklahoma City. In the simulation, the smallpox turned into a pandemic, killing millions. The culprit of the attack in this imaginary scenario was Bin Laden's Al-Qaeda network. One of the very last lines of the scripted drill is a fake broadcast reporting, there is a very high probability this attack was conducted by either state or a state-sponsored international terrorist organization and that a prominent Iraqi defector is claiming that Iraq arranged the bioweapons attack on the U.S. through intermediaries. This drill is later said to have been extremely influential in the thinking of several key Bush officials like Scooter Libby and Dick Cheney. The Dark Winter operation was carried out over two days, June 22nd and June 23rd of 2001.
Good evening. We interrupt our regular programming to return to Southwest Medical Center in continuing coverage of the outbreak of a mystery sickness. Earlier today, hospital officials said they were admitting patients with symptoms that seemed to be severe adult chickenpox. But now we have new information. We go to Andy Field outside Southwest Medical Center. Good evening, Andy. What can you tell us? Sheila, we've been moved to an isolated area behind the hospital. And off the record, doctors here suspect that at least five patients hospitalized at Southwest may have smallpox. Now, for those of us who don't remember the disease, it is a deadly virus. We haven't seen it in this country in at least 20 years. Now, if this proves to be true, we could have a very serious health emergency on our hands. But officially, the hospital will not confirm or deny that diagnosis. And the problem is we don't have enough vaccine to go around. Meaning we don't have enough vaccine for the United States? Well, I would like to think that, but we don't have sufficient uh, stockpiles for the people in Oklahoma, Georgia, or Pennsylvania, much less for the entire United States population. Well, that certainly doesn't sound encouraging. What do you mean exactly? Angie, it means it could be a very dark winter for America. Sobering. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Kavlik. We do continue to wait for official reaction to this developing situation. Now we go to a special report on the deadly effects of smallpox. On day six of the smallpox epidemic, the White House confirmed that federal government officials and military personnel are being vaccinated. 300 people have died. At least 2,000 are infected with smallpox. Smallpox symptoms are being seen in 15 states, also in Canada, Mexico and England. The U.S. smallpox vaccine supply continues to shrink as officials try to stretch limited stocks to cover the entire nation. An official announcement regarding the remaining vaccine inventory is expected later today. Struggles to get vaccinated led to violence in some cities. Profound economic losses are crippling the nation. In Oklahoma alone, economic experts project severe losses in the state's multi-billion dollar agricultural commodities market. Still, no group claims responsibility for unleashing the deadly smallpox virus. But NCN has learned that Iraq may have provided the technology behind the attack to terrorist groups based in Afghanistan. We have a breaking story from Oklahoma. We go straight to Andy Fields of Oklahoma City's KMSA. Andy, are you there? Angie, Texas Governor Rick Parsons has now suspended all surface and air contact between Texas and Oklahoma. He has ordered his state troopers and the National Guard to seal the borders. Now, we're about a mile away from the Texas border here just near Interstate 35 and the Red River Bridge that connects the two states. The troopers here have taken the media to what they call a so-called safe spot. But as we've told you earlier today, Oklahomans by the carload have been seen leaving the state in every direction trying to escape this deadly smallpox outbreak. Now we have reports of vigilantes at the Texas border trying to stop people from coming over. I don't know if you just heard that. that it was a shot fired. We've heard, there's another one. Now, we're not sure where these shots are coming from. We're a little too far away from the border to hear this here, but, but there have been shots. This is the second time in the hour we've heard this. The National Guard and the Oklahoma State Troopers are here with us. We're not certain who's doing the firing or if what we're hearing is return firing. There's another shot. It's starting to sound like a war zone. I'm Andy Field reporting. No other country in the world is accepting flights originating in or transiting the U.S. On day 12 of the worst public health crisis in America's history, demonstrations for more vaccine in hard-hit communities disintegrated into riots and looting around the nation. Interstate commerce has stopped in several regions of the nation. A national suspension of trading on America's stock exchanges takes effect tomorrow. International commerce with the U.S. has virtually ceased. The Centers for Disease Control report that efforts to stem the smallpox epidemic have depleted America's inventory of smallpox vaccine. While the CDC may be out of the vaccine, at least 45 Internet websites are now offering what they claim are safe, effective vaccines. These claims have not, we repeat, they have not been independently verified. Authorities urge caution. 
At least 25 states and 10 foreign countries are reporting smallpox infections. At the United Nations temporarily meeting in Geneva, China has sponsored a resolution to censure the U.S., blaming America for reintroducing smallpox to the world. It demands the U.S. supply the world with vaccine. Since the diagnosis of 20 smallpox cases in Oklahoma City 12 days ago, hundreds have now died, thousands have become infected. The latest figures show more than 15,000 new cases in the past week. Officials now question whether a single attack could be responsible for this outbreak pattern developing in the U.S. Still, no group claims responsibility for unleashing the deadly smallpox virus. But NCN has learned that Iraq may have provided the technology behind the attack to terrorist groups based in Afghanistan. Three months after participating in Operation Dark Winter on September 4, 2001, New York Times reporter Judith Miller co-authors an article on Pentagon plans to develop a more potent version of weaponized anthrax titled, U.S. Germ Warfare Research Pushes Treaty Limits. Judith Miller's main journalistic beat during this period was covering the very secretive U.S. bioweapons program. It's the morning of September 11, 2001, and FEMA teams had already moved equipment into downtown Manhattan the night before to prepare for another bioterror anthrax drill put on by Giuliani's Office of Emergency Management, called Tripod 2. It was scheduled for the 12th, but the horrifying events that took place next put Tripod 2 on hold indefinitely. Two days before the anthrax attacks on September 16th, Richard Pearl, the leading proponent of the invasion of Iraq, member of the Project for the New American Century, and key advisor to the Bush administration, appeared on CNN, where he warned that the next attack would be biological. On September 18th, just seven days after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, weaponized anthrax spores were delivered to prominent figures in the press and U.S. government through the Postal Service. 2001 anthrax attacks, also known as Amerithrax from its FBI case name, occurred over the course of several weeks after letters containing anthrax spores were mailed to multiple news media offices, as well as Senators Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy, ultimately killing five people and infecting at least 17 others. Capitol Police officers and staffers working for Senator Russ Feingold were also exposed. According to the New York Times, the attacks came in two waves. The first set of letters containing anthrax had a Trenton, New Jersey postmark dated September 18th. Five letters are believed to have been mailed at this time to ABC News, CBS, NBC, and the New York Post, all located in New York City, except for one letter sent to the National Enquirer at American Media Inc. in Boca Raton, Florida. The first known victim of the attacks... Robert Stevens, who worked at the Sun Tabloid, also published by American Media Inc., died on October 5, 2001, four days after entering a Florida hospital with an undiagnosed illness that caused him to vomit and be short of breath. The presumed letter containing the anthrax which killed Stevens was never found. Only the New York Post and NBC News letters were actually identified. October 12th, a letter addressed to Tom Brokaw was sent to NBC and opened by a staffer who discovered a fine grain-like powder that drifted out of the envelope like smoke. At the top of the letter, the first thing that was written was the date 9-11, followed by, This is next. Take penicillin now. Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. New York Times reporter Judith Miller who had coincidentally been a part of Operation Dark Winter, also received a letter the very same day containing a white powder she claimed to believe was anthrax, although it was later proven to be an inert substance after being tested by the FBI. In the aforementioned article published at Mint Press News, they point out a strange connection, reporting that, by October 14th, the FBI finally makes public their knowledge about Sun editor Mike Irish's wife Gloria renting a Florida apartment to two of the 9-11 hijackers. When the FBI originally questioned Gloria, the anthrax attacks hadn't even happened yet. But still, 
the bizarre link of Gloria's husband, Mike, being a longtime office mate of Robert Stevens, the first anthrax victim, while working at the AMI building, is written off by the FBI as nothing more than a strange coincidence. Questions about Gloria Irish's connection to 9-11 and the anthrax attacks are also raised by the U.S. press. The Washington Post runs the article, Sun Editor's Wife Found Rentals for Two Hijackers by Jason Bloom. In it, the FBI spokesperson reiterates that her renting an apartment to the hijackers and her husband's employment at the AMI building is just a coincidence right now, and I'm sure there will be some sort of follow-up. While the FBI only questioned Gloria about this, the Washington Post found another connection involving her husband. Mike Irish, who records show is a licensed airplane pilot, several years ago was a member of the Civil Air Patrol based at a small plane airport in Lantana, just north of Delray Beach, an official there said. One of the hijackers, Muhammad Atta, reportedly rented a plane at that airport to practice flying for three days in August. Robert Stevens, the Sun photo editor who died of anthrax October 5th, also lives in Lantana. But there is no indication whether Irish or Stevens ever crossed paths with Atta. Unbeknownst to the American public, that same day, George Bush himself pressures Robert Mueller of the FBI to find a link between the anthrax mailings and Al-Qaeda or other Middle Eastern groups. Two more anthrax letters bearing the same Trenton postmark were dated October 9th, three weeks after the first set of letters. This time, the letters were addressed to two United States Senators, Tom Daschle of South Dakota and Patrick Leahy of Vermont. Staffers working for Senator Russ Feingold were also exposed. Daschle was the Senate Majority Leader. Leahy was head of the Senate Judiciary Committee and Feingold reportedly shared an adjoining office with Daschle. At the time, both Daschle and Feingold just so happened to be standing in the way of the USA Patriot Act from quickly passing in the Senate, and had reportedly been involved together in some heated discussions with Dick Cheney and Attorney General John Ashcroft over the legislation. The Daschle letter was opened by an aide, Grant Leslie, on October 15th, after which the government mail service was shut down and FBI and CDC were immediately involved, turning the Capitol complex into a crime scene. Once again, the envelope contained a fine white powder drifting out as a plume of smoke when opened. This letter read, You cannot stop us. We have this anthrax. You die now. Are you afraid? Death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great. The unopened Leahy letter was discovered in an impounded mailbag on November 16th. The Leahy letter had been misdirected to the State Department mail annex in Sterling, Virginia, because a zip code was misread. A postal worker there contracted inhalational anthrax. At least 22 people developed anthrax infections. 11 of whom contracted the especially life-threatening inhalational variety, resulting in a total of five deaths attributed to inhalational anthrax. Within days, key political and media institutions falsely blamed Iraq for the anthrax attacks, and establishment propagandists such as John McCain and reporters at ABC News intentionally spread disinformation to plant the seed in the public mind that the anthrax came from Iraq eventually leading to Colin Powell's infamous speech about WMDs at the United Nations in 2003. Anthrax. Anthrax in the mail. Anthrax through the mail. Anthrax tainted letters. Anthrax tainted letters. Anthrax laced letters. Anthrax laced letters. Anthrax letters. Anthrax letters. Anthrax letters. Anthrax letters. Presence of anthrax. No presence of anthrax. There is some indication, and I don't have the conclusions, but some of this anthrax may, and I emphasize may, have come from come from Iraq. Oh, is that right? If that may be the case, then that that's when some tough decisions are going to have to be made too. When Iraq finally admitted having these weapons in 1995, the quantities were vast, less than a teaspoon of dry anthrax, a little bit about this amount. This is just about the amount of a teaspoon. Less than a teaspoonful of dry anthrax in an envelope shut down the United States Senate in the fall of 2001. This forced several hundred people to undergo emergency medical treatment 
and killed two postal workers just from an amount just about this quantity that was inside of an envelope. Iraq declared 8,500 liters of anthrax, but UNSCOM estimates that Saddam Hussein could have produced 25,000 liters. If concentrated into this dry form, this amount would be enough to fill tens upon tens about tens of thousands of teaspoons, and Saddam Hussein has not verifiably accounted for even one teaspoonful of this deadly material. As early as September 26th, an article was published in the Washington Times with the headline, Bin Laden Terror Group Tries to Acquire Chemical Arms, claiming that the State Department's latest report on international terrorism says that al-Qaeda continued to seek chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear capabilities. Intelligence officials say classified analysis of the types of chemicals and toxins sought by al-Qaeda indicate the group probably is trying to produce the nerve agent sarin or biological weapons made up of anthrax spores. Sarin can be produced from the components used to make fertilizer and kills by disrupting the central nervous system. Anthrax is a highly lethal biological weapon that causes death after spores are ingested. Another article published in The Guardian on October 14th was given the title, Iraq Behind U.S. Anthrax Outbreaks, stated that American investigators probing anthrax outbreaks in Florida and New York believe they have all the hallmarks of a terrorist attack and have named Iraq as prime suspect as the source of the deadly spores. Their inquiries are adding to what U.S. hawks say is a growing mass of evidence that Saddam Hussein was involved, possibly indirectly, with the September 11th hijackers. As it became clear that the anthrax spores found in the Dashiell letter were a weaponized form, indicating it had been produced as part of a sophisticated bioweapons program, the most vital information pointing investigators to believe it was actually the U.S.-made AIM strain was withheld from the public, as a complicit corporate media facilitated the false narrative that the anthrax samples contained a rare substance called bentonite. In an article published at Salon.com April 9, 2007, Glenn Greenwald explains the unresolved story of ABC News' false Saddam anthrax reports, describing the role of ABC and Brian Ross back in October and November of 2001, claiming that they were the driving force, really the exclusive force, behind news reports strongly suggesting that Iraq and Saddam Hussein were responsible for the anthrax attacks on the U.S. ABC aggressively promoted as its top story for days on end during that highly provocative period of time that, and these are all quotes, the anthrax in the tainted letter sent to Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle was laced with bentonite. Bentonite is a troubling chemical additive that authorities consider their first significant clue yet. Only one country, Iraq, has used bentonite to produce biological weapons. Bentonite is a trademark of Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein's biological weapons program, and the anthrax found in a letter to Senator Daschle is nearly identical to samples they recovered in Iraq in 1994, and the anthrax spores found in the letter to Senator Daschle are almost identical in appearance to those they recovered in Iraq in 1994 when viewed under an electron microscope. At different times, Ross attributed these claims to three well-placed but separate sources, and alternatively, to at least four well-placed sources. All of those factual claims, each and every one of them separately, were completely false, demonstrably and unquestionably so. There is now no question about that. Yet neither ABC nor Ross have ever retracted, corrected, clarified, or explained these fraudulent reports. Reports which, as documented below, had an extremely serious impact on the views formed by Americans in those early critical days about the relationship between the 9-11 attacks, the anthrax attacks, and Iraq. It is hard to overstate how prominently ABC touted this story. Peter Jennings led off his October 26, 2001 World News Tonight program with this. We're going to begin this evening with what we believe is a meaningful lead in the most sensitive anthrax case so far, 
despite a very recent denial by the White House. ABC News has learned what made the anthrax so dangerous in the letter to Senator Tom Daschle was a particular additive which only one country, as far as we know, that's a very important caveat, only one country, as far as we know, has used to produce biological weapons. We'll go to the White House in just a moment, but first, with what we do know, ABC's Brian Ross. Brian? Ross then said, The discovery of bentonite came in an urgent series of tests conducted at Fort Detrick, Maryland, and elsewhere. This is what bentonite looks like under a microscope, a substance which helps keep the tiny anthrax particles floating in the air by preventing them from sticking together. It's possible other countries may be using it too, but it is a trademark of Saddam Hussein's biological weapons program. Jennings then added at the end of the story, Remember, this is October 2001. This news about bentonite as the additive is being a trademark of the Iraqi biological weapons program is very significant, partly because there's been a lot of pressure on the Bush administration inside and out to go after Saddam Hussein, and some are going to be quick to pick up on this as a smoking gun. There is a battle about Iraq that's been raging in the administration, although Ross noted in that original report with Jennings that the findings of bentonite was from an initial test, that qualifier was quickly eliminated over the next several days on ABC as Ross and various ABC anchors claimed definitively that the anthrax was laced with bentonite that the anthrax found in a letter to Senator Daschle is nearly identical to samples they recovered in Iraq in 1994, that ABC News has learned that the anthrax in the letter mailed to the Senate contained an additive called bentonite, and on and on. It is vital to recall how significant the anthrax attacks were in this country, and what a paramount role it played in how Americans viewed the terrorist threat generally, and Saddam Hussein specifically. As Atrios has noted many times, the anthrax attacks seem to have been flushed down our collective memory hole, but other than 9-11 itself, that event, and the media's coverage of it, did more to spawn the next several years of Bush worship and support for his mindless militarism than anything else. As but one very illustrative example, the Washington Post liberal columnist Richard Cohen supported the invasion of Iraq came to regret that support, and then explained what led him to do so in a 2004 column entitled, Our Forgotten Panic. I'm not sure if panic is quite the right word, but it is close enough. Anthrax played a role in my decision to support the Bush administration's desire to take out Saddam Hussein. I linked him to anthrax, which I linked to September 11th. I was not going to stand by and simply wait for another attack, more attacks. I was going to go to the source, Hussein, and get him before he could get us. As time went on, I became more and more questioning, but I had a hard time backing down from my initial whoop and holler for war. Really, just contemplate that for a moment. One of the country's leading political pundits writing in some of the most influential opinion-making space in this country, supported an invasion of Iraq because he believed that Saddam Hussein was connected to both the anthrax attacks and, by implication, the 9-11 attacks. Many of these false claims surrounding bentonite and the alleged connections to the Iraqi anthrax program were explained in the brilliant documentary film American Anthrax. Particularly influential story from ABC News and Brian Ross. ABC's Brian Ross. Brian. Peter, from three well placed but separate sources tonight, ABC News has been told that initial tests on the anthrax sent to Senator Daschle have found a telltale chemical additive whose name means a lot to weapons experts. It is called bentonite. Where for days and days on Peter Jennings and other shows, they claim that they were told by many sources inside the government uh, that tests had found the presence of something called bentonite, which is the hallmark, they said, of the Iraqi uh, biological weapons program. A substance which helps keep the tiny anthrax particles floating in the air 
by preventing them from sticking together. It's possible other countries may be using it too, but it is a trademark of Saddam Hussein's biological weapons program. It turned out that claim was totally false. There never was any betonite found. It does mean for me that Iraq becomes the prime suspect as the source for the anthrax used in these letters. There was a concerted effort to try and link the anthrax in the public mind uh, to Saddam Hussein and, and to Iraq specifically and Islamic radicalism more generally. Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America and to support terror. The Iraqi regime has plotted to develop anthrax and nerve gas and nuclear weapons for over a decade. And so they were aware from the start that it was almost certainly a domestic source, and yet all kinds of factions within the government and out tried continuously to depict it uh, as something that was likely coming from Iraq. And, and they continued to do that for several years, um, even when it was clearly established that it was almost certainly a domestic source. As early as November 7th, the claims being made connecting bentonite as a binding agent in the anthrax were dismissed and contradicted by Homeland Security Director Tom Ridge, who claimed that the actual ingredient was silica. And in early May of 2002, it was reported that the DNA sequence of the anthrax sent through the U.S. mail in 2001 has been revealed and confirmed suspicions that the bacteria originally came from a U.S. military bioweapons laboratory at Fort Detrick, Maryland. The official name for the facility is the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases and has long been the center for the United States Biological Weapons Program. Within months, the narrative linking Saddam Hussein, Iraq, and Al-Qaeda to the anthrax attacks had completely unraveled. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to the American public, FBI was internally circulating much different profile of a white lone wolf depressed scientist who had expertise in making weaponized anthrax. The New York Times reported that by August 2002, Attorney General John Ashcroft labeled Stephen Hatfield a person of interest in a press conference, although no charges were brought against him. Hatfield was a biological weapons expert who in 1999 had transferred to a consulting job at Science Applications International Corporation, which worked for a multitude of federal agencies on many classified projects. Hatfill and his collaborator, SAIC, Vice President Joseph Sukup, commissioned William C. Patrick, retired head of the old U.S. bioweapons program, who had also been a mentor of Hatfill, to write a report on the possibilities of terrorist anthrax mailing attacks. Barbara Hatch Rosenberg, director of the Federation of American Scientists, said that the report was commissioned under a CIA contract to SAIC, but SAIC said Hatfill and Sukup had commissioned it internally. The resulting report, dated February 1999, was subsequently seen by some as a blueprint for the 2001 anthrax attacks. After the attacks, the report drew the attention of the media and others leading to the investigation into Patrick and Hatfill. As soon as it became known, in October 2001, that the AIM strain of anthrax had been used in the attacks, Barbara Hatch Rosenberg and others began suggesting that the mailings might be the work of a rogue CIA agent, and they provided the name of the most likely person to the FBI. In December 2001, she published a compilation of evidence and comments on the source of the mailed anthrax via the website of the Federation of American Scientists, suggesting the attacks were perpetrated with the unwitting assistance of a sophisticated government program. On August 3, 2002, Rosenberg told the media that the FBI asked her if a team of government scientists could be trying to frame Stephen J. Hatfield. The same month at a news conference, Hatfield denied that he had anything to do with anthrax letters and said irresponsible news media coverage based on government leaks had destroyed his reputation. An article published in The Atlantic reported that he was basically harassed by the FBI, his home was repeatedly raided, his phone was tapped, and he was extensively surveilled for more than two years. He was also terminated from his job at Science Applications International Corporation. 
Atfill ultimately sued the FBI, the Justice Department, John Ashcroft, and Alberto Gonzalez, among others, for violating his constitutional rights in the Privacy Act. And on June 27, 2008, the Department of Justice exonerated Hatfill, announcing it would settle his case for $5.8 million. For six years, the FBI focused its investigation on Stephen Hatfill, considering him to be the chief suspect in the attacks. But by late 2006, FBI Director Robert Mueller decided to change the leadership of the investigation. At that time, another suspect, Bruce Ivins, a bacteriologist who happened to work at the United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, located on Fort Detrick, Maryland, became the main focus of the investigation. Former FBI special agent in charge of the Amerithrax investigation filed a federal whistleblower lawsuit against the U.S. Department of Justice on April 2, 2015, claiming that Executive management at FBI headquarters assigned responsibility for the anthrax investigation, codenamed Amerithrax, to the Washington field office, dubbing it the single most important case in the FBI at that time. In October 2002, in the wake of surging media criticism, White House impatience with a seeming lack of investigative progress by the Washington field office, and a concerned Congress, that was considering revoking the FBI's charter to investigate terrorism cases, defendant, FBI Director Mueller, reassigned plaintiff from the FBI's San Diego field office to the inspection division at FBI headquarters and placed plaintiff in charge of the Amerithrax case as an inspector. While leading the investigation for the next four years, plaintiff's efforts to advance the case met with intransigence from Washington field office executive management apathy and error from the FBI laboratory, politically motivated communication embargoes from FBI headquarters, and yet another preceding an equally erroneous legal opinion from Defendant Kelly, all of which greatly obstructed and impeded the investigation. On July 6, 2006, plaintiff provided a whistleblower report of mismanagement to the FBI's deputy director pursuant to Title V. United States Code Section 2303. Reports of mismanagement conveyed in writing and orally included Washington Field Office's persistent understaffing of the Amerithrax investigation, a threat of Washington Field Office's agent in charge to retaliate if plaintiff disclosed the understaffing to FBI headquarters, Washington Field Office's insistence on staffing the Amerithrax investigation principally with new agents recently graduated from the FBI Academy, resulting in an average investigative tenure of 18 months, with 12 of 20 agents assigned to the case having no prior investigative experience at all. WFO's eviction of the Amerithrax Task Force from the WFO building in downtown Washington and its relegation to Tyson's Corner, Virginia, to free up space for Attorney General Ashcroft's new pornography squads. FBI Director Mueller's mandate to plaintiff to compartmentalize the Amerithrax investigation by stovepiping the flow of case information and walling off task force members from those aspects of the case not specifically assigned to them, a move intended to stem the tide of anonymous media leaks by government officials regarding details of the investigation. Complaints were made about compartmentalizing and stovepiping of the investigation in a 2006 declaration. This sequestration edict decimated morale and proved unnecessary in light of subsequent civil litigation which established that the media leaks were attributable to the United States Attorney for the District of Columbia and to a supervisory special agent in the FBI's National Press Office, not to investigators on the Amerithrax Task Force. The Washington Field Office's diversion and transfer of two Ph.D. microbiologist special agents from their key roles in the investigation to fill billets for an 18-month Arabic language training program in Israel. The FBI laboratory's deliberate concealment from the task force of its discovery of human DNA on the anthrax-laden envelope addressed to Senator Leahy and the lab's initial refusal to perform comparison testing. The FBI laboratory's refusal to provide timely and adequate scientific analysis 
and forensic examinations in support of the investigation. Defendant Kelly's erroneous and subsequently quashed legal opinion that regulations of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, included the task force's collection of evidence in overseas venues. The FBI's fingering of Bruce Ivins as the anthrax mailer and the FBI's subsequent efforts to railroad the prosecution of Ivins in the face of daunting exculpatory evidence. Following the announcement of its circumstantial case against Ivins, defendants, DOJ, and FBI crafted an elaborate perception management campaign to bolster their assertion of Ivins' guilt. These efforts included press conferences and highly selective evidentiary presentations, which were replete with material omissions. Plaintiff further objected to the FBI's ordering of plaintiff not to speak with the staff of the CBS television news magazine 60 Minutes or investigative journalist David Willman after both requested authorization to interview plaintiff. In April 2008, some of plaintiff's foregoing whistleblower reports were profiled on the CBS television show 60 Minutes. This 60-minute segment was critical of FBI executive management's handling of the Amerithrax investigation, resulting in the agency's embarrassment and the introduction of legislative bills calling for the establishment of congressional inquiries and special commissions to examine these issues. A level of scrutiny the FBI's Ivan's attribution could not withstand. After leaving the Amerithrax investigation in 2006, plaintiff continued to publicly opine that the quantum of circumstantial evidence against Bruce Ivins was not adequate to satisfy the proof-beyond-a-reasonable-doubt threshold required to secure a criminal conviction in federal court. Plaintiff continued to advocate that while Bruce Ivins may have been the anthrax mailer, there is a wealth of exculpatory evidence to the contrary, which the FBI continues to conceal from Congress and the American people. On February 19, 2010, the FBI released a 92-page summary of evidence against Ivins and announced that it had concluded its investigation. The FBI conclusions have been contested by many, including senior microbiologists, the widow of one of the victims, and several prominent American politicians. Senator Patrick Leahy, who was among the targets in the attack, Senator Chuck Grassley, Senator Arlen Specter, Representative Rush Holt, and Representative Gerald Nadler, all argued that Ivins was not solely responsible for the attacks. No formal charges were ever filed against Ivins for the crime, and no direct evidence of his involvement has been uncovered. Interestingly enough, Ivins became involved in the early days of the Amerithrax investigation, starting in mid-October until 2006 as a skilled microbiologist testing samples of anthrax and even helping the FBI analyze the powdery material recovered from one of the anthrax-tainted envelopes sent to a U.S. senator's office in Washington, D.C. Before the case could be brought to trial, in late July 2008, Bruce Ivins allegedly committed suicide, dying of an apparent overdose of Tylenol while under 24-hour surveillance by the FBI. The Associated Press reported by August 5, 2008, that the FBI had used aggressive tactics in the anthrax investigation. Before killing himself last week, Army scientist Bruce Ivins told friends that government agents had stalked him and his family for months offered his son $2.5 million to rat him out, and tried to turn his hospitalized daughter against him with photographs of dead anthrax victims. In an email to a colleague two months before his alleged suicide, Bruce Ivins said, However, it seems as though I have been selected as the blood sacrifice for this whole thing. Now it seems that the people in power have determined that I must suffer and die in order to appease the Bush-Cheney-Rumsfeld types. In 2011, Glenn Greenwald reported that, from the start, it was obvious that the FBI's case against Ivins was barely more persuasive than its case against Hatfield had been. The allegations were entirely circumstantial, there was no direct evidence tying Ivins to the mailings, and there were huge, glaring holes in both the FBI's evidentiary and scientific claims. So dubious was the FBI's case, 
that even the nation's most establishment media organs, which instinctively trust federal law enforcement agencies, expressed serious doubts and called for an independent investigation. Despite all of this, the FBI managed to evade calls for an independent investigation by announcing that it had asked the National Academy of Sciences to convene a panel to review only the FBI's scientific and genetic findings, but not to review its circumstantial case against Ivan's or explore the possibility of other culprits. The FBI believed that its genetic analysis was the strongest aspect of their case against Ivan's that it definitively linked Ivan's research flask to the spores in the mailed anthrax, and that once the panel publicly endorsed the FBI's scientific claims, it would vindicate the FBI's case and end calls for a full-scale investigation into the accusations against Ivan's. The National Academy panel released its findings, and it produced a very unpleasant surprise for the FBI. A review of the Federal Bureau of Investigation's scientific work concludes that the Bureau overstated the strength of genetic analysis linking the mailed anthrax to a supply kept by Bruce Ivins. The NAS committee stated that its primary finding was that it is not possible to reach a definitive conclusion about the origins of the anthrax and the mailings based on the available scientific evidence alone. In the end, they got their war and millions died. How many times can we fall into the trap of manufactured consent? The 2001 anthrax attacks were a false flag event, a strategy of tension meant to obscure principled morality into an evil form of moral relativism. Mm -hmm.